It's impressive how Indigenous communities across Canada are responding to COVID-19. They're tapping into local networks, traditional skills, the knowledge of their elders, and each other. But Indigenous communities should not be expected to do more with less. Elders are vulnerable. Some communities lack health infrastructure or municipal sanitation. Many are dealing with trauma from our country's history of racist colonial health policies. COVID-19 poses challenges as unique as the communities themselves. So how should Canada help? And what needs to change? I'm Kira Johnston, and this is the Leadership Perspective Series from the Conference Board of Canada. Each episode, we sit down with an expert to discuss an issue that's affecting the lives of Canadians. With me today is Stéphane Fournier, Director of the Indigenous and Northern Communities Team at the Conference Board of Canada. We're going to talk about how Indigenous communities are navigating COVID-19. Welcome, Stéphane. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. What makes COVID-19 different from other crises that Indigenous communities have faced in the past or are still facing? Well, um, I think the uh, sheer scale and scope of the crisis certainly makes it somewhat unique. This is true, obviously, for everyone in a sense, but it's certainly true for Indigenous communities. Uh, It can be a struggle to mobilize resources and support for Indigenous communities, especially small, remote communities, uh, even at the best of times. But when the country as a whole is trying to figure out how to manage the crisis and allocate resources, Indigenous communities can find it even more difficult to ensure that they have what they need to respond. And I guess the caveat here is that I'd say Indigenous communities and organizations are, are actually doing a pretty good job of getting the message out and highlighting their needs. And the media and even governments, I think, have been better at picking up on these needs in the story, which is not necessarily to say that these needs are effectively being met. But in terms of what else is unique, the extent to which COVID-19 plays on certain risk factors that are common to many remote communities, like chronic and underlying health conditions, lack of medical supplies, equipment, and expertise. This crisis is, I think, somewhat unique in that regard and distinct from other emergencies, with the exception, I guess, perhaps of other virus-based, infectious disease-based emergencies that prey on underlying health conditions. So H1N1 would be a good example uh, of that. Uh, but despite despite a lot of this uniqueness, I think the crisis will in many ways be experienced and is being experienced and dealt with in the same way that most crises and emergencies are dealt with in remote communities. So folks are going to do their best to figure out what the main concerns are, what the issues are, and what they have to work with to address them. And, and then, you know, of course, there are almost always gaps in, what, in terms of what they have to work with. But folks will rally and they'll figure out a way to work through regardless. Like you mentioned, COVID is especially risky for communities with long-standing issues, such as housing shortages, for example. But what are the most important vulnerabilities for decision makers? Well, the housing issue is certainly front and center as a key vulnerability. It's hard under any circumstances uh, to prevent the rapid spread of a virus when folks live in overcrowded homes. But the extreme and widespread overcrowding in many remote communities means that even if the community is proactive, and even if it's looking for other places to move families and residents away from infected individuals, there's often no place to go. So other homes are overcrowded as well, and you can't usher everyone into the school gymnasium or the community center or band hall if you want to ensure social distancing. And beyond that, there really often isn't anywhere else to go. 
So the lack of housing and community infrastructure is it's a it's a really big deal and needs to be seriously considered. We also hear about inadequate drinking water, healthcare facilities, food insecurity, and a lack of capacity and expertise and 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 so on. But when we're talking about remote communities, a really big issue that's not talked about enough uh, from my perspective is the lack of roads connecting these communities to the outside world. And as a result, a reliance on air travel to get people and things into and out of communities. So if you need medical supplies, need equipment or a physician as soon as possible, that can take time. There can be delays. But even more, I guess, concerning is that if you have folks that all of a sudden need critical care and access to a major hospital, you could be facing an uphill battle in terms of getting them to care fast enough. If conditions, as in weather conditions, don't allow for for safe flying, the situation can become pretty dire and critical for people who need urgent attention. And I mean, not only do those issues affect the communities, but the grouping of people most affected by COVID are certainly elders. Uh, We talk about it a lot. And I'd like to know, tell me some actions and responses people are doing to protect the elders. Uh, For example, you mentioned in your commentary how the Haida Nation restricted travel to Haida Gwaii back in March. Yeah, so the, the response in Haida Gwaii was really to protect the Haida communities across Haida Gwaii uh, in general, but yes, also also their elders. And they made that explicit in terms of their statements around travel restrictions. Uh, and this was also incidentally a good example of a nation playing to its strengths, to its isolation and, and jurisdictional authority in order to protect its members from COVID. But there are definitely plenty of examples of nations and communities taking actions that specifically target elders. Siksika Nation in Alberta, for instance, created an emergency response team, and as part of that, a mobile COVID-19 response unit. And my understanding is that they use this unit to go directly to the homes of community members to test for the virus and to provide food hampers to vulnerable citizens, including elders. And of course, that makes it a lot easier for elders to remain isolated and to remain safe. And then um, up in the far north, Inuit associations are providing money to elders so that they can buy groceries. And they're also providing support and supplies for folks who wish to practice traditional activities and get on the land as a form of social distancing. And and it's not just Inuit organizations doing this. There are plenty of organizations and nations uh, across the country trying to to undertake similar initiatives. Uh, The Klicho people in the Northwest Territories, for instance, have an on-the-land assistance program, and they're also delivering care packages and food to households, again, with with this prioritization on elders. I know your team recently published a piece called Why Indigenous Health Professionals Matter and Why It's So Important to Have Indigenous Doctors, Nurses, and Healthcare Providers Available to Provide the Care. How easy is this to mobilize now, or is this more of a long-term goal? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's the point here is that it's it's not easy to mobilize now. And that's because we don't currently have enough Indigenous medical professionals, healthcare professionals, and we don't have enough Indigenous people pursuing education and skills development within medical fields. So as a country, I think we, we really haven't done a good enough job of attracting First Nation, Métis and Inuit to these professions and to the institutions and opportunities that, that will lead folks into these professions. Though, again, a caveat is that I think we are starting to see a lot of promising initiatives, a lot of organizations starting to do some really some really good things to address this. 
But this is important because we know that Indigenous communities, especially, again, remote communities, have fewer medical professionals from a per capita perspective than non-Indigenous communities across the country. So clearly, we need more medical practitioners in these communities. And if these practitioners are going to be as effective as possible, it would obviously make sense. It would even be ideal if they were from these communities and nations because they know their communities. And so they're more likely to know what the needs of their communities are and and the residents of those communities and what types of approaches are going to work in terms of addressing those needs. Ideally, we also want to be looking for more ways to deliver culturally appropriate, culturally safe healthcare. And again, having Indigenous people delivering and addressing healthcare needs in Indigenous communities should help to ensure that that happens, that folks do receive culturally appropriate, culturally safe healthcare. If there's anything else you wanted to add on, we're also curious about if there are any projects that your team is undertaking during COVID-19 or if there's any projects coming up or down the line. Yeah, actually, just in relation to the, uh, the question on healthcare there, Two of our researchers, Jane Cooper and Aaron McPherson, just put a short piece together on that issue. It's a great piece, and I'd recommend that uh, folks have a read. Beyond that, yeah, we've got a number of interesting initiatives on the go right now, and I think a number of them relevant to COVID-19. So we're working, for instance, with the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada to help them understand and quantify the impacts of COVID-19 on Indigenous tourism. We're also working with our members of the Centre for the North at the Conference Board to understand the economic and social impacts of fly-in, fly-out labour in northern Canada. So that's a project that actually started before COVID-19. So we obviously didn't have a focus on the impacts of the virus when we first conceived of it. But at this point, there's uh, no question that part of a fulsome understanding of the impacts of fly-in, fly-out labour at this point will involve an analysis on what the implications might be of having workers fly in uh, to northern indigenous regions from other regions where COVID might be uh, present in the in, in the population at much higher rates. And then I guess also we're um, involved in a few labor market analysis projects within the context of COVID-19 and, and more specifically, I guess, within the context of economic recovery from COVID-19. So yeah, we, we have a number of things on the go that I think should be of interest. Just a few things on the go. (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, Really important work that your team is doing. So thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Not at all. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to the Leadership Perspective Series by the Conference Board of Canada, hosted by Keir Johnston and written by Sarah Mells. This series is produced by Jen Duhamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer. And our executive producer is Michael Bassett. Ideas were also contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.